religion at Boston University, and this is our third panel. It's called From Script to Screen, How Content is Made and Why It Matters. And what we have on this panel are four people with what in the Yoruba uh, tradition is referred to as having ashe, uh, or the power to make things happen. These are people who uh, have made films, who have consulted on films, um, made and consulted on television shows. And uh, each of them is going to uh, share their expertise with, uh, with us. Um, I'm going to follow on the last, uh, on uh, Diane from last time and not do lengthy introductions since you all have the introductions uh, in, in front of you. And we'll, um, we'll start with uh, J uh, Geraldine Dreyfus and then we'll move, we'll move down the row. So um, thanks for being here and I uh, look forward to this conversation and we should have time at the end for some questions. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm, I'm going to share just a little bit of a background. Uh, uh, I work at a company called Impact Partners, and we, we finance social impact films. So we've we financed over 100 films, um, and our body of work uh, really looks at sort of nonfiction narrative storytelling um, and uh, tying a film with a, with a strategy for social change um, or a philanthropic strategy. Um, and what I, as I was reflecting and speaking with Sarah about this conference and really thinking about how and when does religion show up in documentary filmmaking, I have to agree with some of Abby's comments that um, uh, the documentary film world as a whole, I think, is it, it is somewhat allergic to discussing faith um, uh, in or taking on issues of faith as subject matters, um, especially around Christianity. Um, uh, and it's, it's puzzling to me um, because oftentimes um, my uh, observation of working with social entrepreneurs and with content creators who I think of as kind of creative entrepreneurs, they usually have a very interesting um, uh, story around their faith, whether they're active in it now or not, but there's usually something that, um, that was a, a, a precipitous moment that brought them to in, to, to lead in the area of social entrepreneurship or in storytelling. Um, so I was just reflecting on the body of work that we have, um, and we made a conscious decision as a company, um, we started 12 years ago, to really look at stories that could help us understand, um, not necessarily faiths, but understand parts of the world or uh, have represent stories coming from um, the Muslim world, especially, we were very we were very committed to um, supporting female and uh, filmmakers and um, and a number of uh, Muslim filmmakers as well. And I'm going to show you some clips um, from three films. One, the first one I'm going to show you is called The Judge. It premiered at um, uh, Toronto last year. It was on uh, independent lens, and it's a story about the first. Um, female judge that adjudicates Sharia law in, in, in the Middle East, and she happens to be Palestinian. And um, I'll show you the trailer and then we can talk for a minute about why we thought her story was particularly interesting to kind of explain the disconnect between what Western audiences, particularly American audiences, think of as Sharia law and what the actual practice of Sharia law is. والله العظيم زوجي قد تركني بلا نفقه ولا منفق 
والله على ما أقول وكيل وشهيد في جيل قديم جيل القديم بكل لك أبصر وبخذها وبيت الطاعة وبطلقها وبطلع لها شيء شو هذا الحكي مش صحيح ما أحنا العدالي <تصفيق> <تصفيق> لماذا لم تتعين المرأة في القضاء الشرعي بحكم العادات والتقاليد؟ من اللي وضع العادات والتقاليد؟ في مجتمعاتنا الشرقية العادات والتقاليد أصبحت أقوى من الأحكام الشرعية وأن أحكم بين الناس بالعدل. It worries me to have Sharia courts. They were primarily male and they were very unjust to women. وكانت هي جريئة. قالت لي أكثر من مرة نريد نحن كنساء أن نتولى مناصب القضاء. كالرجال هذا يترتب عليه مفاسد كثيرة لا تتوافق مع الأسس الشرعية أنا اليوم بالقرن الواحد وعشرين مش ضروري أطبق أشي كان بالقرن العاشر أنا أريد أن تكون قاضي يعني لحالها تحكم بما بعض المواضيع قبل الإسلام المرأة كانت حقوقها مهضومة الرجل بيسجن بين العقل والقلب عنده فبتكون احكامه اكثر صواب من المراه. Interpretation of Islamic law is profoundly different. You can have a woman president in one country and a woman not allowed to drive in another. برا اتقاتلوا عندي لا هي اللي متاثره هي اللي ما ذكرنا لها شيء الحصص فهي اللي بتقدر ترفع الدعوه. زوجها سادي في علاقته الجنسيه معها. فكيف تعطي تفاصيل هذا العنف لرجل اخر وهو القاضي؟ ما جرى مع القاضيه خلود هو نتيجه لابلاغها عن مظاهر الفساد التي كانت في القضاء الشرعي. اذا ما حققتش العداله لنفسي مش راح احققها للناس. صرت نجمي ضوت العيون نار وبنور حرف Um, we, and we finance um, anywhere from 15 to 20. So, uh, you know, we have to make choices. And a lot of times <coughs> we're, we're, we have lots of conversations about, like, who, why is this film important? Not only is this a first female judge, but it's also an opportunity for um, American viewers to be in Palestine, which we don't get a chance to see that country. And so is the, sort of the idea of some of the, the stereotypes that might be confronted um, just by immersing yourself in the, in the life of this woman and her family and, um, and watching um, her struggle with the balancing of her, her family and her work um, and her constituents is, was kind of beautiful to watch and she um, was completely devoted uh, to breaking down these barriers and has been a huge champion for women's issues. So to follow her was easy to do, um, but it wasn't without consequences. She um, was fired, she wasn't allowed to, they tried to take her job away from her, she, um, she wasn't allowed to travel, it was hard to get her visas. Um, but part of the decision making that we made and in, in, in why we wanted to do it was really just this idea of representation and um, not hearing, you know, 
from female voices, particularly in the country, in the, well, I call it the country of Palestine, but some people don't. But in, in any case, that, was, that, was, that went into our decision making. Um, and it was very uh, important for Western audiences to see that Sharia law was not as um, strict as they thought it was. And Khalud um, actually came and spoke here at the Divinity School while we were making the film. And, you know, she was really great at always making points for American audiences to understand that not every Christian believes in the death penalty. You know, like she, she would kind of, she had ways for, um, um, to interact with audiences so that there was a, there was a place mark or a bookmark um, or a, a, a part to, um, a place to enter into her world, which I thought was great. And that made her a great character and someone that we thought would be um, both very winning, very likable, um, very charismatic, uh, very flawed, um, uh, but, and, but also very human. So, you know, when we get pitched films, we, you know, we look at these characters that these filmmakers are following and we ask ourselves the question, you know, how will, how will this person play? How will, how, will they, how will she be received? And felt like she was just such a great character that um, we wanted to back that film and we're very proud of it. Um, so I'm going to show the next film um, is going to is kind of kind of use humor um, as a way of understanding our differences, uh, and it's a story about um, a young Indian uh, first generation um, Indian man who is turning 30 and has not been married, and his parents um, basically challenge him to to spend one year with allowing them to um, set up, be a screen for him for, her, for dating. And so it really, what I love about the, the, the film is this, this sort of, a, um, you walk into a culture that it's certainly I'd never um, spent a lot of time living in, heard about, um, certainly have Indian friends, uh, but the sort of pressure uh, or the idea of, of preserving culture um, it, it was uh, so beautiful and, and so um, emblematic of so many other cultures that have come to this country. Um, but the humor that's used and deployed in this, I think, made it particularly fun and a, a great conversation maker. But it was also a great um, exercise in people really looking at the whole institution of marriage and was it working? and. Um, who's to say which one is better or worse? Where you, you choose your partner for love, or your you your family helps you choose that partner? And what where do those traditions come from? And and how do they um, how do they assimilate um, over time or, or change over time? So I just want to share this one because I think it's particularly fresh and funny. How do we uh, how do we want to do this? Just start at the beginning of the story. Right. The story starts two years ago in LA. I had just broken up with Audrey and I was miserable. We'd been together for two years and I had never told mom and dad about her. In fact, they were freaking out because you know, here I was almost 30, never married, which in our culture is like- Code red. Code red. Yeah, 
are having a great time with the family. Next time, we are going to come with the grandchildren. Here's the thing. In mom and Dad's eyes, I had no idea how to get a girlfriend. I don't know how they fell in love, but Mom and Dad are the happiest couple I've ever seen. The way you guys married, would that work for me as well? Yeah. Not even a doubt. There's a matchmaking. This girl is good with that boy, but that boy is good with this girl. So all the girls and all the boys get married. Dad sent me 20 pictures and resumes of matrimonial candidates, which is totally normal, right? How are we going to set it up? It's not going to happen automatically. I don't want you guys jumping and getting all these other people involved. Looks good, so I'm going to forward this to Ravi, okay? Within weeks, my biodata was in the hands of uncles, aunts, family, friends, and complete strangers. Hey, I'm Ravi. Hey, I'm Ravi. Hey, I'm Ravi. Oh, wait, we already met. This is exhausting, isn't it? I see progress. No messages. Pretty impressive. You're just having a date, I'm just filming. That's just weird. I love that I get to watch this. Put that camera down right now. I'm getting the practice of like pursuing women. Are you good at this? Well, you're Indian, you're not gonna be good. <laughs> My sister has three grandkids and we are a happy, happy, happy family. When our kids doesn't even care to get married. What would be the downside of me marrying a white girl? No, how can we What's your other guy? This is the most unnecessary pep speech I've ever gotten in my life. I love this picture. This is the closest an Indian picture ever gets to kissing. This should be considered obscene by some people. <laughs> we ended up funding that film because we had funded a film, which I'm going to show you a trailer of uh, now. Her, Gita Patel's first film was done with um, a woman named Sanan uh, Kashegi, and she, the two of them were roommates, and. They both had, were first generation. One was first generation Pakistani, one was first generation Indian. Their parents both came from Kashmir, but from different uh, sides of the uh, equation. And they didn't even know what the conflict was. In fact, they had lived together for two years and they had never discussed whether they were Hindu or Muslim. And so they decided to go on this journey back to where their parents were from to understand their roots, but also to try to understand the uh, ethnic conflict in Kashmir. So, oh. Show that, and I think I'm Do you think that there's something that we could know that might help us? You should not trust anyone. Most of them are double speak. Why? Because that's their survival tactics. Yes, be cool, be diplomatic. Don't be a typical American. Meanwhile, world leaders are pressuring both India and Pakistan to prevent the conflict over Kashmir from turning into a devastating nuclear exchange.
How are you? That's very good. Thank you. I'm Sinan. Uh, Sinan. And this is Gita. 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 It's nothing like that. Why did you leave from there? The Muslims are there. The Muslims are also dead. Whatever your perceptions will be, it should be the closest to the truth of Kishmael. There is this one perception, there is this one perception. It's all over now. I'll just end by saying at the time that we um, financed that film, um, we had, the United States was in an occupied um, situation in Iraq and we were kind of asking ourselves questions like, how can arguably three of the you know, strongest or most vibrant or vital democracies also have occupation <coughs> and curfews and, and divides like we had in, in the situation in Kashmir with Israel and Palestine and then ourselves. So we then set out to uh, work with filmmakers that were, were exploring those questions and that was one of the films that we funded as a way to kind of have, um, you know, again, the, the, for the, the trope, if you will, would be these are two um, American first generation um, uh, friends that were going to learn about their past and so we're often looking at sort of what's the right vehicle for a story, not necessarily to 
um, teach us about religion, but to, ex to, to explain to us or to help us um, actually experience what life on the ground may be in places that we read about. And those are just three examples. And uh, I think I'm out of time, but um, I'm available Thank for you. questions. Thanks. Okay. Steve made just one error when he spoke. I am not someone important involved in the, uh, the industry. I'm a simple academic. So this is how we make our living uh, here. It's, it's the, the last book. Um, so uh, I want to thank Diane Moore for uh, inviting me here. And you know, when uh, she was speaking yesterday about the, the sort of three sort of problematic things, a single story, made me think of the blessed uh, John Berger, who we lost a, a year or so, two years now, in January, uh, never again, John wrote, will a single story be told as if it were the only one. You know, I think, that, and I always try to remember that that line of the multiplicity of these stories. Uh, thanks to Sarah Brin and uh, Laura for their arrangements. Thanks to all of you who are, for being here. Uh, my master was the blessed uh, Wilfred Campbell Smith, who for some 20 years directed the Center for the Study of World Religions uh, here at Harvard. So it's a delight to be back in the master's house. Uh, I was actually talking with Dean uh, Hempton yesterday, and thank you again for your hospitality and hosting us here, about uh, Wilfred. And people don't remember uh, him, unfortunately, that in 1940, he wanted, he was in Toronto. In 1940, there were about 5,000 Muslims in Canada. He wanted to study Islam. So he went to the country with the most Muslims, which in 1940 was uh, India, before partition. You know, He and Muriel lived there from 40 to 46, left in 47, came back in 48, and saw the remnants of the violence, the horrific violence, you know, at least half a million people in that area in the Punjab, you know, who killed each other, Hindu Sikhs, uh, Muslims. And for him, that was the, uh, the, I think, the driving force for what he did. You know, how do we understand ourselves? How do we work in this world? You know, we can't be objective scholars in the white lab coat saying, my, what a curious phenomenon. These people seem to have butchered themselves. Let us investigate, you know. That's immoral. You know, so we have to be engaged. And so I come from that tradition of very, very serious, and there wasn't a more serious scholar than Wilfred, but being engaged and to be serious are not incompatible there. Um, I want to talk a little bit here about um, some of my own experiences uh, as a Muslim who's a scholar of Islam, uh, born in Pakistan, came to, to Toronto in 1970 when there were less than 35,000 Muslims in Canada. Now there's over a million with the National Household uh, Census, you know. While the population has grown, we're not there on uh, television, you know, as, as a number of folks have talked about. So this was the one East Indian, as we South Asians were known in the 70s, uh, could relate to, was Haji. Uh, wasn't quite sure how a child had gone on the pilgrimage and earned the title of, of Haji. And then later they changed to Haji Singh, which is sort of this interesting, I'm not sure how a, a Sikh person is able to make the Hajj, but, you know, what do you do? Uh, Max Klinger, Jamie Farr on MASH, uh, Arab character, but uh, uh, like Tony Shalhoub, unusual sort of Arab uh, character. You know, month, you can see the tagline, the real OCD. He's got a, a, a obsessive compulsive uh, disorder. And most of the Arabs, of course, on television then were Christian, not Muslims, reflecting the reality of American life, that half the Arabs in America are Arab Christians, not Arab Muslims. You know. um, as a kid, I stayed up watching Roots and was delighted to see that Kunta Kinte, you know, played by LeVar Burton, was uh, a Muslim. I had no idea about the transatlantic slave trade and the Muslims involved uh, in that. 
I knew about African-American athletes. And these were my heroes. And I don't see Ron here. Oh, sorry. I was going to talk about you if you weren't here. But uh, no, exactly, exactly. Uh, so no disrespect to Serena. I worship at the altar of Roger Federer. And I will say that Serena is the greatest tennis player of all time. I do not think you can call yourself the greatest athlete of all time when you were separated from your opponent by a net. My boy, Muhammad Ali, is the greatest athlete of all time. We can talk about that uh, later. What's that? You're saying, yeah, saying, yeah, running away is, running is a skill, you know, that's, that's uh, exactly, you know, we'll, we'll get into this uh, later on. But Ali, you know, was quite simply the greatest athlete, let me just say that again, the greatest athlete I've ever seen. And I've seen some, some athletes, Ali, and the combination, the speed, the power, the ability, I can tell stories there. And then uh, Lou Alcindor, as he is here, then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So folks who would come in, in Ali's case, you can see, and uh, we chose that picture, the fruit of Islam, coming in through the nation of Islam, uh, Kareem coming in straight through uh, Sunni uh, Islam. Yeah. And then there were some surprising things. So one of my favorite comedies, WKRP in Cincinnati. You know, uh, Tim Reed played Venus Flytrap, and in the final season, Venus is about to get arrested or something, and when the detective asks him, he's praying in the elevator, and the detective asks him if he's a Muslim. You know, really interesting, interesting kind of thing, the construction of black with Muslim, which is not unsurprising given that at least a quarter, depending on who you ask, it's between a quarter and 40% of American Muslims are African Americans. So there's history uh, here. You know, when I ask my students to name a Muslim on uh, television, they're stumped, you know. Someone comes up with Apu from The Simpsons, and someone, of course, very quickly says, no, no, Apu's not Muslim, he's Hindu. The real Simpsons fans know uh, Bashir bin Laden from the uh, My Pods and Broomsticks uh, episode. You know, so you do have like a Muslim character on The Simpsons. Uh, Dave Chappelle, you know, for three years, The Chappelle Show, just incandescent, transcendental. Chappelle's Muslim, and yet none of the characters on the, on the show were Muslim. You know, who are the ones that you know? Well, you know, Side Jarrah on uh, Lost. Um, Eamon Walker, Imam Kareem Saeed on Oz. This is interesting, I was talking about this at lunch. This is the first regular Muslim character on American television. It's the uh, uh, Kareem Saeed character. Tom Fontana had no desire to create the first regular Muslim character on American television. Tom Fontana, for those that know, you know, did cop shows, homicide. That cop shows end when the bad guy goes to prison. He wanted to take it to the next step. What happens in prison? That was Oz. If you remember before The Sopranos, Oz, I think, was actually HBO's first uh, uh, drama series that they did. You know? And if you're doing the archaeology of prisons, you have to talk about the gangs in prisons, including black Muslims. And so you had this. So really interesting kinds of ways where, in a roundabout way, Tom Fontana creates this really, really interesting character. You know? contrasted with my world that I grew up in, you know, <laughs> pro wrestling. I grew up working class poor. These are our, this is our opera, our theater, <laughs> our stage where good and evil, you know, is fought, literally, you know. But you look at the Muslims, you know, the Iron Sheik, Muhammad Hussein, uh, Abdullah the Butcher, uh, the other <laughs> Sheik, you know, just these villainous heel sorts of characters, you know, not reflective of the reality of American Muslim life, where American Muslims are, are by and large wealthy, educated, doctors, lawyers. I mean, I'm a disappointed in my family because I'm not a real doctor. You know? <laughs> I tell my mother that. I do have a doctorate. No, no, you're not a real doctor. Yeah. You know, the kind that helps people. You know? 
Um, and then, without getting too much into politics, you look at this statement, you know, then-candidate Trump. Now, Islam hates us. Now, I'm not sure how religion hates people, but <laughs> put that aside. I was actually with Diane in DC on January the 27th, you know, the day of the travel ban. And coming back, it was delightful to see the protests, especially, uh, and I was talking to Sarah about this, you know, the, the protests coming from the Jewish community, you know, who know more than anyone where this road of intolerance and oppression uh, leads. And seeing, you know, Jews standing up for Muslims as Muslims. You know, really powerful, so in a funny way, I think one of the unintended consequences of the Trump era, I've lived in Los Angeles for 21 years now, and I've done Muslim-Jewish work for 21 years. I've never seen the communities more together than uh, in the last year and a half uh, or so. You know, um, I was gonna uh, talk a, a little bit about some of these things. Uh, this was already raised, I think, uh, Lorraine, you actually had this tagline uh, here, you know, the friends, neighbors, husbands, terrorists, sleeper cell that Showtime did about American Islam, sort of interesting. Michael Ely plays like the Muslim hero uh, here with uh, Odette Fear, and it's always great when the Israeli plays the Arab who's the bad guy uh, in the film, just levels of complexity uh, uh, there. And this is shot at uh, uh, Sinai Temple you know, in, uh, in Los Angeles. Some of you remember uh, this show, which unfortunately just ran for uh, one season, Aliens in America. You know. Uh, really lovely, lovely show about this high school family that was going to adopt uh, uh, what they thought was like a Norwegian. There's some things there, Mr. Trump. I just uh, anyway, um, a Norwegian exchange student, but they end up getting you know Raju Musharraf from Pakistan, who wears a shalwar kameez and talks with an accent. And it's, it's about negotiating high school and fitting in. And you know what better metaphor for uh, religion than in a funny way, sort of high school, sort of finding your niche. Uh, the comedies work in really interesting ways. Um, community. If you remember Community, uh, five seasons on NBC, six seasons on, on Yahoo, and the movie rumored to be in the works. Set in a community college, and, and Danny Pudi plays uh, Abed Nadir, who's a Muslim. Uh, he's got an Indian father and a Polish mother, who's a nod to Danny, who actually does have an a, a Indian father and a Polish mother. Um, in this episode, uh, his cousin Abra, who's in full uh, burqa, comes to visit. And I love this show, mostly because Iqbal Fiba plays uh, uh, Danny's, uh, uh, plays Abed's father, and his name in the show is Gobi, which is cauliflower, for those that know Urdu. And it's just, it's, a, it's a, one of those sort of subversive kinds of plays. Of, that's not a guy's name, that's the name of a dish, you know, <laughs> but you use that. And he's supposed to be Palestinian, but of course Iqbal Fiba is Pakistani. And so I don't know if it's like Palestinian and Pakistan come into like Pakistan as some sort of, you know, thing in the American uh, psyche there. But lovely, lovely show that deals, I think there's literally like three episodes that deal with uh, Abed's Muslims. So that's the way to deal with uh, the work. Little Mosque on the Prairie, we talked about this Canadian television show that Zarka Nawaz did in 2007. Ran for six seasons. Lovely, lovely show that talks about the complex realities of Muslim life. And it's much about big town Small town, Zarka grew up in uh, Toronto, moved with her family to the prairies. And it's as much as being a fish out of water, going from the big city to the small town, but really lovely. Um, I wanna just conclude by talking a little bit about my own involvement in some of uh, this kind of work. It's something I never thought I would do, you know, as a um, scholar of Islam. And 
in uh, 2007, I got a call from uh, Nancy Miller's office, who's the showrunner for this show. I don't remember if people saw this on TNT, uh, Saving Grace Extraordinary, uh, Holly Hunter's Grace Hanadarko, you know, who's a uh, police detective in Oklahoma City, whose family's killed in the Murrah family, uh, the, the uh, Murrah Federal Building bombing in 1995, which was initially thought to have been uh, uh, committed by Muslims, and of course it was uh, white supremacists, you know, who uh, did this. You know. Lovely show, and in the show, uh, um, Bokeem Woodbine, another transcendental actor, plays this Muslim inmate, Leon Cooley, who converts to Islam in prison. And I was able to help the writers write some really interesting kinds of things about that conversion, including a, a, a scene where uh, Leon Rippey plays this uh, angel, Earl, who's like the last chance angel for both the Holly Hunter character and the Bokeem Woodbine character. And uh, Leon's afraid that when he converts to Islam, he'll lose the angel because, of course, he's a Christian angel. And it's a lovely scene where he converts, makes the shahada, and there's uh, uh, Earl standing behind him saying, Salam Alaikum. You know, the angels are angels. It's not Muslim angels. It's not like a Christian God or a Muslim God. There's God. It's not like there's Muslim angels, Christian angels. There's angels here. Um, most recently, I've, I've worked since uh, 2015 on Story of God with Morgan Freeman. And we did this in uh, DC. Uh, beside Mr. Freeman is Muhammad Zakaria, the most important American Muslim uh, calligrapher. Phenomenal, phenomenal talent. And I just want to show a little clip of that show. So I've been a consultant uh, on the show, and as someone who's been told uh, very often that I have a, a great face for radio, I was actually very uh, pleasantly surprised when they said, well, do you want to be on the show? And I'm like, okay. So, this is more for street cred than anything else uh, here. <laughs> Sorry, so I'll, I'll end with this. I've always had a thirst for knowledge. Still really a thing I can get my hands on. This instinct to learn about our world, try to understand it, is universal. Civilization itself is based on our drive for knowledge. But does that knowledge bring us closer to the truth of God? The answer to that may depend on whether you believe the words we write come from our minds or from God. All of the world's major religions have a sacred text. The Sikhs have a book called the Guru Granth Sahib. The Jewish faith has the Torah. Both offer divine wisdom to their followers. Center in Washington, D.C., to see how the words of the Quran are more than holy wisdom for the Muslim faithful. They are proof of God. Dr. Amir Hussein is a scholar of the Islamic tradition. It's like hearing Morgan say that. Two of the names of God. So then, calligraphy 
has a special place in me. Absolutely. To me, you need out of those letters, out of those words, is really important. You know, through the words that God speaks. For Christians, God's word is the Bible, and God's word really is Jesus. You know, God coming to earth in flesh. For Muslims, the Quran is God coming to earth in book. So the very words of the Quran are the words of God. Proof of God is the Quran. Is the Quran. You know, if you ask the fact that it exists. Absolutely that it exists, that God reveals God's self to human beings in these words. And in these words in Arabic. 80% of Muslims don't use Arabic as their day-to-day language. But the words of the Quran are always in Arabic. So it's been a delight to work on that, that show with uh, Mr. Freeman. The third season uh, this fall, they haven't given us air dates yet, but look for it on National Geographic. And you know, during the, the Q&A, we can talk about this. And really the last year, uh, you know, when you think of Mahershala Ali uh, winning uh, Best Supporting Actor for Moonlight, when you think about Hassan Minhaj uh, with Homecoming King, when you think about uh, Aziz Ansari and the kinds of stuff that he's on a Master of None. So really interesting connections with the other folks here. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for hanging in this afternoon. Um, so I'm the head of programming for a company called Transform Films. And we make documentaries, long and short form documentaries, that deal with issues in our society that are important to all of us. Um, you know, we've tackled issues like mass incarceration, uh, gender violence, gun violence, racial inequality, um, economic inequality, the list goes on. There are too many issues that we all have to deal with. Um, but um, the way that we do it is really in, t in telling, in great storytelling that lifts up characters and so that their voices create empathy with the audience. And it's in creating that connection that we can lead to change, I think. Um, I think what makes us unique in the world of um, documentary um, and it's a blessing and a curse, um, is our parent company is a multi-faith nonprofit organization. Um, and that, uh, that, that leads some, to some challenges for us. But what Odyssey Impact does, which is our parent company, we do impact outreach using those films for direct engagement with the films so that we can talk to people of faith people who come from secular organizations, sort of bringing people together around films to, you know, sort of really in, encourage the dialogue um, that, uh, you know, um, uh, Diane mentioned uh, this morning that, you know, she quoted Abby last night, the question mark versus the, um, the exclamation point. Well, we're all about the question mark and creating that dialogue and that space for people to really engage with these issues. So in Transform Films, we create these films that very often, mostly, do not, are not films about religion, right? But they're about themes that are important to people of faith. Um, so I want to show you a clip and then I want to talk a little bit about 
some of the challenges that we've found um, operating in the independent film space. Um, and again, Abby alluded to it. Um, you know, uh, Jarlin alluded to it, um, that when you're coming from a faith space, um, there, there are some challenges that you have to deal with. So the clip I'm going to show you is um, from a film that is going to premiere on Netflix next week, September 28th, set the calendars. Um, it's called Lessons from a School Shooting, Notes from Dunblane. Um, Jarlin is one of the executive producers on it, and the Harvard Divinity School is one of the kind um, supporters of the film as well. Um, it grew out of a feature film that we did um, several years back, um, right after the school shooting in at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Um, and uh, the filmmaker, Kim Snyder, uh, really embedded herself in that community. Um, and there were many stories. Our initial entree into the community was through the faith groups in town. Um, and Kim really sort of took that access and built it over time um, and built trust in an amazing way that led to the feature film Newtown, which some of you may have heard of, um, an extraordinary um, Peabody winning um, documentary that aired on um, Independent Lens last year. Well, this is, a this is film, a 20 minute film, that was shot during that same year. This story didn't make it into that film, but it's a really important story that looks at what trauma looks like and how people process trauma. Um, and in this case, it's the trauma that the first responders, and specifically the clergy as first responders, um, have to deal with. Um, so let's see, let me get out of here. So this is just a, um, a short clip. Have a look. Um, the, the film deals with a lot of issues between two communities. Um, across space and time that we dealt with a very similar issue. So you have Newtown, which is very freshly dealing with a school shooting, and you have an, um, a, a community in Dunblane, Scotland, that dealt with a similar shooting about 20 years ago. Um, and some of the parallels, <laughs> what was the same, what was different, but what was really unique is the relationship <coughs> between um, these two men who... This is from a parish that uh, they had a Christmas tree. And these are the ornaments from the tree with a prayer. Um, and these are the families that put on the tree. This bird is so real. Just unimaginable something like this could happen here. How do you live with that? I don't... You know, people know how hard this is. I really don't. I don't. I don't know if that's really had if it's had the impact. You know, just to see so many people just so affected. Dear Father, my name is Monsignor Basil O'Sullivan, an Irish priest living in Dunblane, Scotland, where we had a similar tragedy to yours some 16 years ago. 16 very young children were murdered at school together with their teacher and some 12 other children were wounded. Your tragedy brought a lot of memories back to us here in Dunblane. 
our town remained depressed for at least a year before things began to get back to something like normal. Sadly, even today, we get unhappy repercussions of the event. I tell you, that is why John Petrie and I tell you, um, that's, that's your answer, Hamlet's chair. Five years, a very short spell in the best part of the week to get to all the films. I like to inform you that in this church of the Holy Family there were prayers and tears for you all at Mass this Sunday morning. Dear Monsignor O'Sullivan, thank you so much for your emails of support, prayers, and encouragement. It's been overwhelming in so many ways. The town is very different and very somber, so I'm not quite sure when and if we will all bounce back. God bless and a special thanks to you, Monsignor Bob Weiss. We had eight funerals in this church, plus many of their wakes were held here as well. So, you know, we wore white vestments, we wore purple vestments, we wore pink vestments, you know, we, we wore bows, we wore whatever it took uh, to let that funeral belong to that child and that family. These are not anonymous people, they're they very much a part of this community and, the trust that they were willing to place in me as their pastor to, uh, you know, for the honor. <laughs> to bury your child, you know. It's an honor. My dear Monsignor Bob, many thanks for taking the trouble to answer my email. I realize how tired you can become nothing else small privacy. I am attaching my account to the events in Dunblane. We in Dunblane were factored at the school incident. No doubt you will find much of the account in accord with your own experience. So um, I, I think that one of the things that strikes me um, in terms of the conversation here about that film and that clip um, and re religious literacy is that it's a story that those of us who are not um, clergy <laughs> don't don't know, don't see, don't realize the the um, the things, the, the way that these events sort of weigh on um, on faith leaders and how they have to process that or don't process that. I mean, it, I think it's a real problem, and we've actually been talking to um, a number of, of um, people in the field who are really welcoming this kind of, of dialogue. Um, so um, I just wanted to talk very, very briefly, um, just give you a quick rundown of how we got to where we are and what we do, because I think it's important um, to this discussion um, a number of years ago, um, the first film that we did was a film called Serving Life, which appeared on the OWN network. Um, and it was actually the first film in their, uh, when the network first launched, the OWN Documentary Club. And it was a, it was a feature film about um, a, a prisoner-run hospice program at the Louisiana State Prison. It's, it's an excellent film, and I would highly recommend anyone see it. What was wonderful for us is that um, own commission that film 
and so they paid for it, which is great, but they own it, so we can't do anything with it in our Odyssey mission work, right? So, um, so our, our mission as Odyssey Impact, as our nonprofit, is to use media essentially to bring together faith and secular people to create a more just, compassionate world. Um, and, and we got enormous responses from, or inquiries from prisons, from hospices, from hospitals, from um, academic uh, spaces asking us if they could show that film and use that film and we couldn't do anything with it. So, um, so we decided that we needed to make a change um, into um, independent documentaries and, and actually Newtown was, was our first foray into that. Um, but what we found, and again, I'll echo what Abby said, <laughs> um, is, the, um, is that the, the independent film community um, was very suspicious of a faith-based organization. Um, and so we had um, a number, and, and to Kim Snyder's credit, she, um, she was completely open-minded when, um, when we talked to her about working on Newtown. Um, but um, we found that we had to change the way that we did business. And that's really how we set up Transform Films to operate independently of what we do in our mission work that comes out of Odyssey Impact. So the films that we do in Transform Films, we work with independent filmmakers. We produce some, we co-produce some, um, you know, people bring projects to us. We work in many different ways. But those films don't have a, um, a faith-based mission behind them. They really are lifting up stories that illuminate the social issues that we deal with. Um, and then they feed into Odyssey Impact, which is where and my colleague Melissa Potter is here, and she, um, she heads up that initiative. Um, but that's really where we're able to do direct engagement with people around these films and dig deeper into some of those issues and, and move people to action, right? We want to change. Um, we want to change people's awareness, attitude, and action at, at Odyssey Impact. Um, so that's who we are. And uh, thanks for listening. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. So I'm going to change what I was going to talk about a little bit, uh, put in some other things based on so many things that uh, I've heard here. Um, Abby's opening presentation was terrific, and one thing I was struck by was that she talked about her own background in relationship to faith. Um, I'm one of those people who has virtually none. I'm Jewish by culture. Uh, my mother was religious, my father was not. Uh, at 13, I refused to be bar mitzvahed uh, because I'd never gone to Hebrew school and they offered me a deal. They said, we'll give you the short six-week course and you can have it. And I was appalled at the corruption of the, the system. I mean, I was like, what, what is this? Um, and even as a young child, I don't think I had much of a relationship to faith. And so maybe because I never walked away from it, when we became documentary filmmakers, our first, after we made our first film about a Jewish home for the aged, uh, home for life, our next set of films were all funded by a progressive Catholic adult education. 
a couple of nice Jewish boys, we had no problem with it. We were like <laughs> thrilled. And we had a great time convincing them that whatever we wanted to do really fit with their mission. Uh, we were greatly influenced by Chronicle of a Summer by Jean Roosh, this very seminal documentary. Uh, we were like, okay, inquiring nuns. Two nuns go around Chicago asking people what, if they're happy. That's what we had seen in that film. Um, so I want to show you a, a couple of uh, clips, and I know I'm going to need help with this, uh, from one of those early films, which this is, it's 1967, and there, uh, yeah, the, the two clips are, and what, what was happening was this is the <coughs> northwest side of Chicago. These are the children of firemen and policemen, a very conservative Catholic parish. And these are high school students who are dealing with the contradiction of what they're learning in the church, what they're being taught is the value of, of their religion, the values of their religion, and what they're encountering in their world in terms of the coming Vietnam War, in terms of race relationships of Chicago. And they have this club they call Thumbs Down, and they put on youth mass. So you, first you're going to see them planning this mass, and then the next scene is a little bit later in the film when they're pitching it to the young priest who's going to conduct the mass. There's a lot of it. Um, who's going to give the homily? I don't know. It looks like the guy in the green shirt that's sitting next to you there. I think Tom O'Brien will do it. I don't know. I'm not sure either. Well, we can decide that later. But anyway, um, and then after the sermon is over, if enough people are, you know, enough people we hope will be upset by it, um, I don't know exactly how this will work, but someone else can get up there, whether it be Father Del Rey or somebody else in the group, and, and ask the people exactly what they think, you know, what they're feeling right now. Ask them to look into themselves, and if they feel hatred for the person that just had spoken, then they shouldn't really be sitting in that church at all, because that's not what Christianity is all about. They might disagree with the person, but they, you know, they cannot hate the person for what he said. It's hey, sort of like... can I... go ahead. It's sort of like dramatic technique rather than just talking at people and preaching. It's uh, a, te a technique of actually getting them emotionally involved with, against you and then pointing out calmly or whatever you want that uh, this, this particular reaction they had isn't Christian or something like that. Maybe I can explain it better for time. These people that are sitting in the mass in the audience have a reaction of hate towards this person that's giving the homily. And they are doing exactly the same thing that the Jews did to Christ, or the crucifixion of Christ. They hated Christ because he presented an ideal that they didn't like, and they crucified him. And this is what we want to show. We don't want to embarrass people. Okay, and then the, the, the next scene is a few days later. Uh, there's been a terrific call between, between the young girl uh, and uh, Jack and the priest. Uh, on the phone where they're kind of pitching him this idea and they're off, you see them on camera trying to tell each other what to say. It's just the sexual politics are very funny and now they've come to pitch it. Some, you want to present a position of not of in any way attacking the war. No, of love. Maybe, maybe stressing the, the concept of, of uh, the Christian view of, you know, not non-violence to an extent, you know. Uh, and the idea of peace and love, right? I mean, as long as it's, but if it's in any way so directed that everyone just senses, you know, the, the weight of 
This is anti-war propaganda. <laughs> if this is what it is, then I think that you're, you're being dishonest with the people. Just as much you're condemning everyone else for being dishonest, maybe at times. We're not so much talking about anti-war, we're talking about O'Brien being Christ. He states what he believes, and if these people want to crucify him for it, then what in the hell are they doing at Mass? You see what I mean? You want to make Tom O'Brien Christ? Is this what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, but, come on. Oh. No, the thing that's going to hit him is, here's this perfect middle class, real honey up there, with his tie and suit, and nice combed hair, and clean shaved, and he's going to say, Oh, but I believe in war. See, it's a new concept. It's like Christ. He, he was there, very they'd accepted. They don't. Christ was. He was just like everyone else. In the background. That's uh, why. <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, I'll sit in the last row. No. So what? Right from the beginning, uh, I think we are some of those social justice left-wing filmmakers who had no fear of the question of faith and religion, um, and. Our interest, these films, what I just showed you, the clips, we were verite films. So we went into people's lives, we followed what happened. Uh, we may have started with some research and our preconceived notions, but we were very committed to really following the story. And religion and faith is a part of people's lives. It's in virtually all of our movies in one way or another. Um, and one of the things that I'm sort of picking up when we talk about images of other kinds of people, what you were, several of you have been speaking about, how do you talk to people? How do you make people uh, understand each other? And we talked earlier, there's some, someone talked about Fox News and the news. Uh, we live in our silos. And for me, what has, I've always been passionate about in terms of documentary is that I think it's a critical part of a democracy. That what documentary can do is move people's emotions. And I want to read something, just brief. This is kind of the quote that got Kartemkin going. And I was a student at the University of Chicago, uh, and I was reading in philosophy, and this is a quote from the American philosopher John Dewey. And he says, where did it go here? Artists have always been the real purveyors of the news, for it is not the outward happening in itself which is new, but the kindling of it by emotion, perception, and appreciation. So that's, that's what documentary is, and that's why it can change people. Um, I was going to show a couple of other clips, which it turns out are on a different DVD from the one that I brought here. It's back in the hotel room. But I'm going to briefly describe them to you uh, because they both elicit emotion very quickly. One is 90 seconds. It's from a series that we did uh, in 2000 called The New Americans. And it was about immigrants coming to America at that time. It was after Hoop Dreams. We had a bit of a chip that we could cash in, and we said, immigration is going to be an issue. We need to be there. And so we followed families. We spent a lot of time with them in their home countries before they ever got to America, so you could understand what they left behind. And this 90-second 
seen, and sometimes you, you work and work, and I'm sorry I didn't bring them because we always kind of, what can I show at a thing like this? What will be short enough? This sums up our seven-hour series. Mm -hmm. It's a young boy in rural Mexico saying goodbye. He's six or seven years old. I think he's in the second grade. And he's there. finally the family is going to immigrate to the U.S. The father's been working on this for years. And he's saying goodbye to his school, which has no windows and a dirt floor. And it's a good school. And it's a great teacher. And it just it moves your heart. It's a really powerful visual scene. It's emotional. She's crying. And you understand, he's leaving something incredibly valuable to him behind in that school and with that teacher. And I had a, a, a wonderful, fortunate moment, which is he walks out against the door. It's kind of blown out by the light. And his little kid is going like this. The other scene is from the Palestinian story. And the Palestinian woman, her dream is to come to America. She's finally in America. She's engaged to a Palestinian-American guy. And for reasons I'll never understand, he's decided to teach her to drive at night. And so they're in the car, and, you, and the camera's not in the back seat. We may got the camera's looking at them. You can see their faces. Uh, and he's, stop, stop, stop. And she like jams on the brakes. And this happens in English and Arabic. They switch back and forth. She's like, why are you yelling at me? There's nobody there. Why are you yelling at me? She says, I know, but a kid could run out and you have to be able to stop quickly. And she says to him, why don't you run out and see if I can stop? And it's 30 seconds. And that's the other piece of what we look for. And it always, I, I love it because it's always, when you see it on the screen, it takes a moment to land and it's a gender laugh. The women always laugh first. Um, I want to show another clip because we do think strategically about, and um, Abigail also, she talked about this. Uh, she did a film about a minister. We came across a story, we had been, uh, okay, well, I'm going to show this one last clip. Uh, very quickly, we came across a, uh, this is going to be at the death house door clip. We came across a story about a death house minister in Texas who had presided over 99 executions. And it resonates with your story about trauma. What did this guy do after every execution? He came back and he recorded an audio tape about how he felt because he had no one to talk to about the trauma that he had been through. Very conservative guy. He looks conservative. He's a Republican. You can smell it all over him. And so this, I'll show the clip. Even to this day, I don't understand how I got where I am. From 1982 until 1995, I was ministered to 95 inmates who were put to death by lethal injection. I never intended to do 95. In fact, I didn't intend to do one, but it happened.
After each execution, I made a tape on everybody that I walked with to the death chamber. I knew that I had to talk to somebody. And the only thing in my house at that time was a tape recorder. Some of these are well-known people. Some of them are unknown. And then there were others I know were not guilty of the crime for which they were put to death. On that one, everything went against what I felt. So that was very much the similar kind of strategy. When we, we stumbled on this story, we, we were approached by the Tribune, uh, which had two reporters who were reporting on uh, actually the case that he's talking about of the innocent guy who was put to death. And when they told us about the minister and the tapes, we were like, okay, I think there's a movie there. And if I haven't, do I have another 30 seconds or am I done? I got it 30 seconds. I, I'll, I just want to tell you one other uh, quick story because this question came up too, which is what do we leave out? And as filmmakers, we do at times leave things out. There was a moment in Hoop Dreams, I was going to show a clip from Hoop Dreams, but there's, I don't have the time, but it's a church scene. But there's a moment in Hoop Dreams where uh, one of the boys is being prepared for the SAT exams, and the teacher who's been helping him, she's been very dedicated, says, just guess. It's a multiple choice test. Even a monkey would get some of these right. Well, this is African-American family. This is going to have a big African-American audience. That's very charged language. She didn't know what she had said. She didn't know what she meant. And in that case, we took it out. So we made a decision that this, you know, in another situation, you would leave it in because it would be an example of a kind of racism. Uh, the church scene that I was going to show, and this is maybe more controversial, we show it in a very positive light. The man is off drugs now. He's come back to the family, Arthur's father. And it's a very emotional church scene. Arthur walks out. He's still mad at his father. But what we don't put in is that this is a very patriarchal church. This is a church which is basically telling women to do what their husband says. And we struggled with that because we knew that was the case. On the other hand, we didn't have a character who brought it into our story. And so it was left out. Hmm. Thank you. Um, thank you all. Thank you all so much for those presentations. We have about ten minutes for uh, for questions. So, and we have uh, mics again. So, just raise your hand, and we'll come find you. And I, I have a question while, while we wait. Uh, we heard uh, from Roan early, earlier on about the documentary as sort of the place to tell the truth um, in complexity. And uh, three of you are involved in uh, documentary um, films. I suppose the Morgan, the Morgan Freeman um, series is a kind of documentary. Um, 
What do you think about that? Do you want to uh, pat your own backs for, for <laughs> having chosen the right genre? Or, or is it just the case that every genre from the epic poem to the haiku is a way to tell a story and you just tell the story the best you can in whatever genre you're, you're using? What do you all think? I would say the latter, that we, you know, that's a false question. Uh, you know, Werner Herzog loves to create that argument with documentary. You guys claim that you're telling the truth mm. and you know, but we never claim that. <laughs> it's all about how you tell the story. It's all about the art of how it's made. And I see a feature sometimes and I'm like, that's true. And it's this, you know, there's no magic to documentaries. What is the magic of documentaries, if you do it right, is that you have to go into another culture. And the question mark for me always is, where am I and what's happening? Nice. No, and, I, I, and just obviously agreeing with Gordon that uh, I'm thinking now of Edward Said's uh, Joseph Conrad and the fiction of autobiography, that you know, autobiography by definition is fiction. You know, and how do you come up with these things? And, and you get, you know, in the days when fake news used to mean uh, John Stewart on The Daily Show and not, you know, the real news, but Stewart would often talk about the fact that the fake news was kind of on par with the real news. And that, now, again, part of that was you have half an hour to do this kind of thing. It's not a 24 hour news cycle. You have really good writers, you know, come up with material there. But often that there's more truth in fiction than anything else. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think that um, we're storytellers um, and finding the best way to tell the story, whatever the medium is, um, is, is what we do. Great, okay, question out here. Uh, thank you. My, my question actually builds on this because I'm recognizing, of course, that documentary is perhaps the most hospitable medium for advancing complex understandings of religion and other issues, but who watches documentaries? I'm just really struck by that. I mean, like, my kids don't watch documentaries, so I'm, it just seems like the elephant in the room is much bigger mainstream media, and I wonder if you could comment on that. Thank you. Um, well, it, the audience for documentaries has grown exponentially over the last 10 years. Um, when I first got into this business, uh, it was, there were four news channels, PBS, NBC, CBS, um, ABC, and there was a real bias against funding documentaries in the philanthropic world because they felt like you had public television, what more did you need? There, you know, there, but really with the advent of technology, um, uh, you can find audiences for all sorts of content, good and bad. Um, and it's incumbent upon the filmmaker and the content creators to find their audiences um, if they're gonna be commercially viable. And we're seeing all sorts of um, success using social media platforms, um, Doing grassroots screenings, uh, of, you know, of using the, they have a new word, eventize, you know, where you can release a film in many theaters at the same time and have a conversation. So there's all sorts of new ways to engage audiences, and I think, um, you know, part of the power of making documentary films is to know who your audience is. 
you're not making an audience, you're not making a film for everybody. Um, but you should have a plan for how you want the film to go out in the world and where you want it to live. And that also is your job as a content creator. Um, so there's a lot of strategy involved in how to make the content that you um, create actually have purpose and sing and have impact. Um, and we can talk a lot about that, but it's very true that we're not making content for a lot of different demographics. And it's also very true that with trailers and with conversations and with media coverage about a story, like I'll use the example of The Hunting Ground. We made a film about rape on college campuses. It was basically shelved by CNN. They showed it once at 10 o'clock at night on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, so it was really never broadcast, right? But we had grassroots screenings of that film on every single college campus in America. Mm -hmm. And um, we also made a song with Lady Gaga that never was on the radio because it was about rape. Mm -hmm. But it, we released it and over 120 million people, she was up for a Grammy and she was up for an Academy Award for a song that was never on the radio. So you have to really know how you use your content um, when you make it, is my answer to that. Mm -hmm. I, I would add that um, I, I completely agree with, with what Geraldine said. It, I mean, it's, um, there are lots of uh, different ways now um, that there, there are much, many more opportunities and sort of that strategic thinking behind it. I also think that there are um, many more formats now that documentarians are working on, and some of those have greater accessibility to different audiences. So it's you know sort of tailoring your, um, your content to who you want to see it as well. Um, so I think it's, um, we're, we're, at a, we're at a sort of a very rich moment right now um, for, for the distribution of documentaries. Yeah, uh, we've, we've done short things on Facebook and platforms like that. This question is for Dr. Hussein. Um, I saw a photo of Muhammad Ali that you had up there when he was part of the Nation of Islam. Later on, he embraced Sunni uh, Islam. What is the difference between Nation of Islam and, and, and mainstream Islam? Um, thanks, that's a great question. So um, in a nutshell, when uh, Elijah Muhammad, uh, who's really the key figure behind the Nation of Islam, dies in 76, his son, uh, Warith Dean Muhammad, sort of brings the Nation of Islam into Sunni uh, orthodoxy. So when you're looking at the Nation of Islam, and now the, the rhetoric of the nation is that it, it always was this case, that if, if uh, W.D. Farr and Naj Muhammad were preaching what, the, uh, what they, if they were saying in 1934, what they would have said in 1976, no one would listen to them. And so it started off as being uh, very different. That you know, you didn't. The, the ministers were called ministers, not imams. You worshipped at temples. You didn't read the Quran. It was more like a, a Sunday afternoon church service than it was a, a Muslim uh, service. And then it was under really uh, uh, Warth Dean Muhammad that the nation sort of comes into Sunni orthodoxy and starts doing the kinds of. Uh, practices to the point that Louis Farrakhan says, wait a minute, you're actually not following the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And he sort of restarts the nation on the, the principles of, of uh, Elijah Muhammad uh, there. There's a much longer version yeah. of that. Uh, I'm sure you could get. <laughs> yeah, that's... But that was admirably short. Um, I apologize, I missed part of the presentation and someone may have addressed this, but I've been following the Colin Kaepernick Mm. Um, and corporate America, and it's not new of corporate America and advertising addressing kind of social justice issues, but I think that's such an intense focus and sort of laboratory at the moment for 
for that particular issue. And as documentary filmmakers <coughs> and with your expertise, do you find yourself um, you know, being called by advertising agencies or uh, corporate social responsibility departments? And, and how does that, what do you think about that? How do you interact with that? Is that good or bad? It's a generic question. Um, there's a lot of what's called branded content that's uh, replacing advertising, where your storytelling is really um, speaking to the values of your brand. And, um, I, you know, it's very personal. Some, some documentary filmmakers, uh, that's how they make their bread and butter so that they can do the projects that they want to do. It's a way of financing um, a business. One of the biggest challenges in the documentary film world is that uh, Filmmakers um, don't get a lot of support from the private sector or the public sector. So it, you have to have two or three projects going at once in order to maintain any kind of overhead. So a lot of the branded content really helps maintain really good editors um, and staff and so you don't have the inefficiencies. So I tend to be on the side of um, if a filmmaker um, engages with a, a brand and they come up with a storyline and they feel like their creative juices are being um, deployed and, and, and they feel good about the content they're creating, I think it's wonderful. And it's better, I'd rather watch a story than I'd rather be hit over the head with an advertisement. Um, in fact, I turn off advertisements or I don't, I, don't, I switch channels or I don't, I don't watch them, I skip them. So I think it's a, it's a new field and it's not without complications, but it's uh, it's emerged and it's here. Is my take on it? Uh, uh, we have time for just one more question. So, or do we have two people? We have two. Okay. Okay. Why don't we have three? <laughs> okay. Well, we're out of time. So, so let let's hear um, three brief questions, and then we'll get in, we'll hear all the questions in a row, and then we'll. Try to answer them quickly. So far, we've never followed that direction. Exactly. So but let's hear the, exactly. let's hear the three Thank questions, and none of us will answer exactly. until all three of them are done. Just say. Excellent. Excellent. Mr. Idea. Quinn, you discussed your heritage uh, initially, and uh, I know the spirituality of Hoop Dreams really you know, brought documentary to another level. Can you talk about how the making of that and how that might have increased your spirituality, where that's gone with your career, where it's driven your career since then? Great. Thank you. So um, I'm, a I'm asking whether you think that the commercial, we call it a commercial, that Nike just did with the football player whose name escapes me at the Colin moment. Colin Kaepernick. But, well, yeah, we know who yeah. he is. Um, that strikes me as a mini documentary or is that a commercial? And I guess that's my question. Great. Ron? Um, I, I would just like to know what are the stories um, that you would most like to see represented? Hmm. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, oh, let this poor gentleman, he's been all over. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What about the effects of documentaries on the people being filmed? And I specifically want to ask not the, about the person who introduced the film, but about the film of the pastor who was breaking down as we were, as he was telling us about that. And I presume that he could not have anticipated that that would happen. Mm -hmm. And I was very glad to see it, but I wondered about my right to see it. And I wondered about the impact on, on him after the film was over. And I, I, I want to say something, which I, I don't, I love this whole session, but I, I, I feel an intrusion in documentary filmmaking 
and I've experienced that again and again over the past two days. I just want to get comments on it. Okay, great. Um, thank you for those questions. Um, well, I, Quinn, why don't you tell us about your spiritual path? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's an you want to answer the Queen's question? Yeah, Maybe I can tie two yes. things together great. because one of the things that we, we take that question very seriously, uh, that when I talk about documentary ethics, I say there is a contradiction. You as a storyteller have a responsibility to tell the truth, to get to the bottom of the story, to get to the most powerful way of telling it. But when you spend four or five years in people's lives, you have a responsibility to your subjects also. And those two things can often be in contradiction. So one of the things that we do is before we finish the film, when we can still make a change, we show it to our subjects and we say, look, you're gonna get to see it. If there's something you can't live with, we will take it out. Now, I'm telling you up front, I'm going to argue with you. I'm going to tell you I have to see those tears or I have to see you when you're really down because then when you overcome those difficulties, that's the story arc, that's the payoff. You're, it's not going to be, but at the end of the day, if we can't convince you, we'll take it out. Uh, we are still involved 25 some years. It's even more than 25 years now with the Hoop Dreams families. Um, I am often moved by people of faith and their, the power of what you experience when you experience them and the way it gives them strength in their, in their lives. It has not changed my lack of faith. I'm an agnostic. I'm not, you know, I'm not an atheist. I'm just like, it's just not on my radar. <laughs> So, uh, just in response to the, the Colin Kaepernick uh, question, I start my religion film classes with a video that Mark Romanek did of Johnny Cash's version of Trent Reznor's Hurt. And it's, it's great because, you know, so it's, it's raises all these questions of authorship and, and what are we doing here? So Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails sings this song about being a 30-year-old junkie. Cash sings it, changes one word about being like a 70-year-old uh, ex-junkie. Mark Romanek makes this film that doesn't work out the way he wants to do it as a promotion for the, the Rick Rubin American Records. So the, the point of the exercise is to sell this record, but it's this amazing kind of thing. I mean, Nike's a business. <coughs> Nike's business is making money. It's great that they've shown Colin some love, but at the end of the day, they're about the sort of commercial stuff, but can you get something, you know, uh, uh, out of that? I remember uh, when Vanilla Ice to use a word that probably hasn't been uttered in these halls, um, did Ice Ice Baby and had a big hit. I can't remember the, the, the you may actually remember Lorraine, who the interviewer was, who went to Chuck D and was hoping to get like the angry Negro response of, you know, what do you think? Chuck is the, the one of the guys behind Public Enemy with Flavor Flav and, uh, about, you know, this. And Chuck says, no, like, you know, when, we did, when you do your shows, you're selling cassettes out of the back of your truck, you're trying to sell as much as possible. So props to this guy for, you know, selling this, that it's not, it's not about being a sellout, it's not doing this kind of thing. If this guy's making money off this, great. This guy's making money off this. That's what we're all trying to do, you know, in this business. So these interesting kinds of uh, lines, you know, 
uh, here in terms of that. And then, then that whole sense, of, and, and Gordon, you did it so well, that I was talking about this at lunch. My friend uh, Gary Smith, phenomenal writer, who used to be a sports writer for Sports Illustrated and won like you know half a dozen like magazine writing awards, not just a dozen sports writing awards. But he's talked about when he does these stories of, of people, is he being a pornographer? Is he putting the people's pains, uh, uh, pain up on view for people to, and he's talking about writing, not, not the visual part, which is a whole other thing. And he says, no, I mean, that, the, the, that's the difference. You know, uh, is there something meaningful, something learned? And obviously, you know, getting the, the uh, approval from people to say, okay, you know, this, this is what we're gonna show about you. Is that okay uh, uh, with you? I think there's, um there's a real um, gift of caretaking that the best documentary filmmakers um, exhibit um, in their relationships with the people who were in their films. Um, and um, as, as Gordon said, I mean, these are, these are relationships that you build over time and that go on after the film is released. Um, and I think it's, it's truly that care and respect that goes into it and there's a, there's generally a meeting of the minds and, and you know, um, that the subject or the person in the film um, does understand um, what's being put out there and, and agrees to it <coughs> on some level um, because of the greater message or, or just the, the value in getting that story out. Great, unfortunately we are out of time, so uh, if we could uh, thank our four panelists. <laughs>